It's only entertainment. Welcome back to The Talking Hedge. I'm Josh Kincaid, Capital Markets Analyst and host of your Cannabis Business Podcast. Today, we've got Milan Patel. He is the CEO, co-founder of Pathogen DX. Milan, thanks for being with us at The Talking Hedge. Thank you for having us, Josh. Thanks for, for the time. Yeah, it's going to be kind of interesting. I've, I've worked on some projects uh, with uh, National Institute of Health. Looks like that's going to be one of your partners as well. Tell the audience a little bit about what you do, because it's they they understand pesticide testing to an extent, you know, and uh, that's about it. So you're doing a lot more than that. Tell the audience a little bit about what you do. Yeah, no, thank you for that question. Uh, so our company, Pathogen DX, is a platform uh, diagnostics company. So what does that mean? That means that we develop, uh, we design, develop, manufacture, and sell uh, testing kits and equipment to testing labs. And the three markets we're we are prevalent in, or at least uh, have some uh, footprint in, is basically in the in largely in the cannabis market, uh, in the food and environmental market, and and most recently because of COVID in the clinical market. Mm-hmm. And with the cannabis specifically, what is it about um, the need for that? I know that with hemp, there's a lot of of issues with some of the heavy metal uptake from hemp, uh, and you definitely don't want that crossing the blood brain barrier. So getting it tested for obvious reasons, just so you don't want um, all that, you know, whether it's pesticides or um, other bacteria, there's a lot of things that can happen within that kind of growth cycle from uh, people touching it or, or whatever else. So tell us a little bit about like cannabis specifically and some of the testing that you're providing and how maybe that's helping some of the, the new emerging markets. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Great question. So, so um, the, the technology uh, in the cannabis market, specifically in the industry itself, um, there's a uh, prevalence of a lot of bacteria and a lot of fungal organisms. Uh, by virtue, in a lot of the grows, you have to you have to deal with E. coli, Salmonella. These are the known uh, cast of characters we've all dealt with, whether it's the romaine lettuce or, the, or chipotle, which we've heard about, uh, and uh, most and also in, from a soil perspective, you've got these very pathogenic species on the fungal side, uh, uh, Aspergillus, uh, Flavus, Fumigatus, Niger, and Terius. And then you have Staph aureus, Clostridium, you've got Mucor. So there's a host of anywhere from six bugs that are sort of deadly, um, you know, to at least about a couple of dozen, maybe even up to 50, if you're looking for plant pathogens that have to do with the health of the plant itself, the crop itself. And so, um, a lot of the states in the, in the cannabis sector uh, have promulgated laws, testing regulations around testing of these bacteria and funguses, uh, pathogens specifically, that could be deadly to immunocompromised uh, consumers and patients, th- those that are cancer patients that may, those may have, uh, you know, uh, immune suppressed uh, systems. And so the bottom line is you're having to test whether it's flower material or non-flower matrices, whether it's tinctures, concentrates, and edibles for these types of bugs. And what our technology sort of does is is it really simply uh, tests it instead of one at a time, like an individual Petri dish at a time, moving back to the 19th century to Julius Petri. We multiplex, meaning you you actually test for all those pieces all those uh, particular pathogens in a single test 
very efficiently, very simply, in a, in a very cost-reduced manner. So I, I, the whole idea here is to move the industry and the world into not doing using a 19th century enrichment-based approach that, that, you know, where the methods are so outdated relative to the, the challenges we're facing. Yeah, there's a lot of 19th century technology everyone's still using, like the high pressure sodium and metal halide bulbs that were used in, you know, 19th century streetlights. So maybe they'll uh, come up to speed with a lot of these things. I'm curious, though, how much needs to be tested, though, because right now Washington State is looking at adding pesticide testing, which they should have, um, and they don't. But uh, what they're trying to do is decide whether it's going to be an every five pound lot or 50 pound lot. Do you have any advice or recommendations on on how much people should be testing in order to do it efficiently? I think in the case of what we deal with in terms of bacterial and fungal organisms, I think when you pick a 50 pound lot, that is that's too big of a, a batch size because mm -hmm. bacteria and fungus does they don't grow uniformly over us putting you know, a, a netted Christmas tree light over a hedge and you see the lights uniformly distributed as if, if they were an analogy of a bug. You see them growing in different, concentrated in different parts. So if you pick one side of a batch on such a large batch, it's going to have nothing. In another large, in a place, it might have a concentrated this, uh, uh, cluster of, of, of uh, pathogens. So I think that, you know, the five to 10K, five to 10 pound batch is, is more reasonable. On the top end, it would be 20. But I think what we've seen is we've seen a lot of prevalence of, of aspergillus as up to 20 to 30 percent. And, 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 you know, even E. coli and salmonella and other organisms. When you look at this market and you look, you look at it at the state level, you know, in states like Washington, they're very light on the, the, the regulation for micro, microbials. So, the country's looking more like these seven cast of characters, Salmonella, E. coli, stec, pathogenic stec one, stec two, and the four aspergillus species. They, that's what it's sort of looking like, like. But now, in the case of New York, they've got 15 pathogens because their state health lab went in and they said, where have we seen specific cases, clinical cases where you and I got sick because of one differentiate bug, one unique bug? And that what it is, is a function of clinical cases where somebody fun fundamentally got sick. So in that particular case, it could look like as many as 15. And so the idea is that how do you make it simple? Well, you, you do the, you use this, our kind of innovative technology, which really flattens the cost, reduces the turnaround time, and you get the answer very efficiently. And why, because over the course of time, Josh, you only add more bugs. You only add more regulation as, as we get more federalization. We're not going to add less. And if you look at the food industry, every week there's an outbreak, every week. So when we grow to the size of the food industry, are we looking at 2,000 recalls nationally? Because we didn't really solve the problem. So that's really the driving force of why we need to, you know, why we need to have a, a, a good balance between state regulations that are too light and federal regulations that are up here. Because when we come into federalization, we're either going to crash into that wall or we're going to naturally 
you know, transition into that federal framework. How do you merge the two from, from boots on the ground standpoint of too much regulation costing too much money? So by moving from the five pound bag to a 50, 50 pound bag, you're saying that it's not going to be efficient, but it's more cost effective. So all these farmers that have razor thin margins are complaining about the additional regulatory burdens, and yet it's essential in order to test for all of these issues, E. coli, salmonella, powdery mildew, mold, you know, uh, fungus, all this stuff. So I'm going to, I guess I'm going to ask you in a different or the same way, maybe you can give me a different answer. What, what is your opinion on how to effectively offer a solution that's both cost effective and efficient? I think the idea is truly uh, technological innovation. And, and what I mean by that is we can continue doing, what's the definition of insanity? Mm. You continue to do the same thing over and over again. So like I said, if we continue to reuse, you know, yesteryear's century old practices for modern day challenges with pathogens, you're not really applying that. So in the case of look at the level of innovation we saw out of COVID, COVID testing era in the last two years. We, we leapfrogged the way viral pathogen testing was done di- uh, clinically and diagnostically, just from the amount of focus and effort. So what I'm saying is, uh, I want to think about it from the standpoint, if, you, if every lab in this country had to grow seven Petri dishes for every sample that they've collected from every grower, and it takes you three to five days, forget it. it, it it's, it, it's game over and the grower will say, the grower, the agriculture, the farmer will say, hey, guess what? You know, this is too taking too long, okay? This is too, too costly. And oh, by the way, by the time you get the answer, their, their, their outbreaks spread across their whole cultivation. Right. Now, that innovation that we apply with the ability to multiplex, meaning the ability to test for all these in a single test in less than six hours, is, is the ability to flatten that, is, is the leapfrog on innovation to reduce that cost. And that cost isn't stratospheric. It's actually equivalent, if not less, when you factor in the total cost of Petri dish testing and the time component, you know, all together. So it, it is a function of that. And so I, I think that, uh, that that's the key driving force. So people sometimes think that innovation is always more expensive than, it, than what they're doing today when it really isn't, mm-hmm. you see, so. I say the same thing to people who have 18 uh, employees on a joint rolling table. And I'm like, just buy an automated machine. What are you doing, folks? Um, I'm curious about the um, mold to gold. And if that's mitigating risk, a lot of folks that are skeptical about testing, or they don't, they don't want to have to throw their crop away are just going to go and take moldy product and blast it into concentrate. Is that enough, though? Are you really getting rid of all of that? Is it truly mitigating your risk? Look, I'm a purist, right? But that, that is being idealistic, right? I love your question. Because the first thing, you, when, you, when you raised your question, Josh, the visual that came up in my mind is, Josh, are you going, to, if you come to my house, I'm going to give you moldy bread. Mm. Are you going to consume that moldy bread? But somebody will say, no, well, it's basically pressurized and We've gotten rid of it. Will you take, will you eat it? Will you give it to your grandma? You're not, right? Because the bottom line is somebody will say, is it truly pure even after you go through the extraction process? I don't know if it is. It's an oil, 
but I don't know the long-term consequences from our health outcomes perspective, what that does, right? So 30, 40 years from now, we may find out that it, it, it didn't really do anything it was beneficial, or 30 years from now, we may find out that, you know, it may have, it may have very, um, you know, uh, impactful, uh, or it may be impactful from our health outcomes. And what I'm saying is when, when you're young and you're consuming it, your immune system's super healthy. It's like a, a new tire with new tread. But when you're in your 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, that tread wears away and your immune system is more susceptible to a longer term consumption of this type of, uh, you know, this type of compromise. And it can be a compromised product. I don't know the, the, they call it longitudinal testing, meaning over the long course of time, do we know whether clinically this is going to be beneficial or harmful? And that's where we don't know. So I can't say that it's a bad thing, but what I can say is that if we, if we address the mold right from the starting point, and how we do that is one of our products is EnviroX. It tests for the spores in a grow, like what's floating in the, in the air in the, in the cultivation facility. And it can test if there's, if there's actually microbes that are landing on the canopy that create that yeast and mold. We test on surfaces and we test on the water. So if we test for those locations, you know, and it sounds, uh, bless you, if it's, it sounds basically expensive, but it's not. If we clean our, the house we're growing our product in and we, we sanitize it, then there's less incidence of our crop being moldy. And when our crop is not moldy and it's more pure, then we're not having to treat it in the, in the back end of the process. And that's my fundamental belief that we as an industry should be going in that direction, primarily because when the FDA finally shows up in this conversation that you and I are having, and that's to say there's a third person and he's an FDA regulator, he's, he's going to be pointing a finger like this. And that finger is going to say, guess what? I believe in what is called CGMP, continuous good manufacturing practices. What that means is you, Mr. Grower, will have to test your soil, your water, your air, and your, and your supply chain to make sure if, if it's going to be graded as medically uh, grade product, medically grade marijuana, that it died right from the get-go from the time where you got that soil is absolutely uh, devoid of any kind of contamination or you know, influence on, on compromising the product quality. So there's a lot of there's a lot of things I threw there, but part of it is is us sort of having that mindset that let's let's focus on the things that where the source of this contamination occurs on the plant and address those first rather than sort of back end saying let's just you know send it down the extraction pathway. Mm -hmm. Are you finding that um, states and government agencies are on board? I, I myself have worked on another project where it was basically um, electrolyzed saline. It's hypochlorous mm -hmm. acid with the charge um, that would have worked really well. Uh, the Washington state regulators, the Liquor and Cannabis Board, liked the idea, would have saved them $2 billion when we had swine flu, but they're, uh, they're kind of restricted on what they can do without FDA. So trying to go through that route was like $2 million to get approval just to have something that everybody knows about to try to get more natural products. I think glyphosate is in everything from Cheerios to wine. And I think reducing the amount of pesticides and everything we need 
is is better for for everybody involved, especially when we talk about medical marijuana. Um, There's a new hemp um, blight that's out. I forget what it's called. There's something that's going on with that. Do you know anything about what's going on and how that could affect the market? There's there's definitely uh, there's a bunch of viruses that are out there. Latent hop virus, this cucumber mosaic virus. So there's this there's this um, break outbreaks of these viruses across multiple grows that that have been there for the last year year and a half, and it's having devastating impact. It's not something you can just culture or plate plate culture with. So the so the your question around is, do we see the tide turning? Yeah, we do. In fact, I think that we're going in, I call it phase two or three of, of our industry from a regulatory perspective. There's a, nat, there's, a, there's a normalization of this at the state level, but I still think that we are, we are not really focused on really thinking about the mindset of the, F, of the federal government. Mm-hmm. If this was FDA and USDA, we have to sort of say, would they change anything about the federal uh, regulatory framework for cannabis or marijuana? Absolutely not. Think about it. They're going to apply the pharmaceutical, regu- pharmaceutical regulatory framework basically because it's a lot easier to do with what they've got rather than say, let's come up with something brand new. No, they're not. So they're going to treat us the same way. So part of it is, is that step by step, we have to work you know, we have to get up on our two feet. We have to baby step towards that federal framework. And I think we have to adopt some aspects of it in our mindset and our, and our operational practices. And that, that'll get better. But I think at the end of the day, I, I can see, I can see that I can see us turning the corner, but we're not completely turning the corner because what's gave as, as the regulators are turning the corner, they're being tugged by the growers to a large degree, Josh, to sort of say, guess what? We don't want too much of our testing. Mm-hmm. Well, you're not gonna have an option when tomorrow you, we're all at the doorstep of the FDA and those growers are out of business, period. That's it. Is there a preventative way to find out if if there is, um, you know, not, not, not the things we were talking about, not the E. coli or salmonella <laughs> powder mildew or mold, but I don't want to say more serious, but uh, the the uh, the issues that cause blight, you know, the things that are going on with the viruses in hemp, is there a way to test for those in a preventative manner? Yes, it is. It's, it's, it's the same thing that if you tested the actual product, you can capture it in the environment before it winds up on the product, like I said, in the air. And so we've got a, a really cool device. It's, it's like a, it's called a Coriolis unit. It's like a, a Dyson vacuum cleaner with a gooseneck. And it's got a valve on it, so it sucks in like 300 cubic meters of, of air in a grow. So if there's a flow stream going in the cultivation facility, it'll be able to capture that in viable form, meaning in living form. And we test that using the same technology we've got. So you'll know that it's out there before it sort of hits the canopy. And then it just you know erratically spreads across the canopy. You can actually isolate it, and then you'll be able to know where, it, where that source is coming from. So... We have now the technology to do that, even if it's sitting, if it's surface borne or if it's, if it's uh, water borne, such as Legionella and stuff like that. But the blights, yeah, absolutely. We've, and so we've got this new product called PhytoX, which is all of these viruses that are now plaguing the industry, both hemp and cannabis, that we're going to release in the next couple of quarters that'll do the same testing at a very simple level so that it, it can help the farmers and the cultivators 
environmentally, right? And that's that that'll that'll mitigate the areas that they've they've already got contamination because of the blight, and they can they can cordon it off, right? At the end of the day, so it doesn't spread. So it it reduces it it prevents a, a you know financial burden on them, reduces the amount of financial burden on them because they can't you know they can't catch it fast enough. I'm curious where the adoption rate is happening faster. When I think of medical marijuana, I think of like Colombia and Peru, uh, places that actually have like MDs, doctors prescribing cannabis in a medical facility. Um, and right now in the US, we kind of have this, this older market on the West uh, versus kind of a new uh, emerging market on the East. Do you find that there's a difference in, in, in adoption rates with testing right now in, in terms of who's calling you and inquiring? Is it kind of the new markets that are looking for an exit strategy with federal legalization rather than the older markets that are like, we're barely holding on, we're just hoping to survive till tomorrow? What has been your take uh, with the older markets versus the new emerging markets? I think the older markets, basically food and agricultural, food and specifically is very conservative. They don't, they're not adopt to change. And the, and, the, and the reason is because at the federal level, there's, it's very punitive. If you, if you uh, fraudulently or falsely change results in a lab or in a, at a manufacturer, mm. you go to jail. Because that's the, that's the implication at the federal level. Like what happened with listeria uh, uh, contamination in bluebell ice cream, ice cream. So it's so punitive that, that, that they corrected the behavior, but it's, it's so also so the pendulum swung so too far to the right that, they, that it's hard to bring innovation in, um, you know, to the degree that we, we can in the cannabis sector. In the agricultural sector, they've been, they've been burned, and this is a function and consequence of, of hemp itself. But in the agricultural sector, because of the number of blights that they've had on, on wheat, on corn, on maize, that the farmers over decades have the practices to ensure that from a, just an industry practice, they don't even need regulations. They, they've, been, they've been burnt so much time and time again over the number of different times that they've had famines and they've bl they blights that they, it's a practice for them to test, okay? And, and yes, it's costly, but at the end of the day, it's, it's, a, it's a given cost. Now in the cannabis sector, it's a different world. And that's because we are seeking approval. We're seeking credibility. We're seeking acceptance that the, that, you know, big brother, the federal, federal engine will accept us as a, as a credible in industry doing the right thing. So when you look at East coast to West coast, East coast, basically at the end of the day are still going through that state level ballot of setting regulations. When you look at New Jersey, you know, all of those states, they're still sort of starting to sprout up. If you may, West Coast is sort of a little bit more further up that maturation curve and starting to look alike. And so it's building sort of not just an individual state level, but it's regional and it's starting to look like the same, same approach. So that's good news overall. So, you know, at the end of the day, that's how I see it. And I think the level of, of innovation in, this, in the cannabis sector was that the number of turns in terms of innovation turns was unprecedented. Mm. It's, it's mind boggling to tell you the truth in seven years because 
cottage industry, you and I are willing to share things. We're not in it just for the quote unquote money and the IP, but I think that's, our, that's also starting to change, you mm -hmm. see. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would agree with that. Uh, I, I think a lot of people are changing from soil to hydroponics as well. I don't know if there's a listeria season, but there is a fair season. And I hear about a lot of listeria cases at fairs with the hot tubs and, and the misters when it's warm outside. Um, are you seeing an uptick in listeria as a result of pe more people using hydroponics without cleaning out the lines? Obviously, you could test for that, but are you seeing an uptick in cases of listeria and testing? We're, we're not in, in the cannabis sector because they don't mandate it, right? So if they mandated listeria across these states, then we would probably see that as an uptick. But in the food side of the world, we see it. We see it a lot, right? And and what's happening is it, when USDA comes in, they're going to say it's not just listeria that's important. It's listeria monocytogenes, a specific pathogenic subspecies of it. So, so you know, I think that at the end of the day, uh, it's a function of what the states are, are promulgating in terms of testing regulations. But if they, if they added it, we would probably see it, just like we're seeing aspergillus everywhere, mm -hmm. you see. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, well, it's, it's going to be fire season eventually uh, when the West Coast just starts burning. In no. Oregon, we saw a lot of mold being pushed through filter, uh, you know, filtration systems and testing positive, even though there wasn't, you know, quote unquote, mold that was growing on the plant, there was mold on the plant. Um, I'm curious if, um, if you've seen that, there's obviously ways people should be testing for it, even if they aren't, if even if the conditions don't say you know, that there's something wrong, there always could be something wrong. Curious about your take on that. Yeah, we, we can still test for it, even if um, the, the thing about our method is it's a DNA method. So DNA doesn't lie. Okay, it's a signature. It's a, it's basically a digital signature of that of, of mold on there. Um, it could be, you know, all different kinds of mold, it could be mucor, it could be aspergillus, it could be saccharomyces, these are different makes up makeups of mold yeast and mold so it's not like it burns away and you're clear of consuming it but if it's dead it's dead and and that's the that's the part of it so the question is the issue is when you have fire you may have stressed the bug or the bugs yeast and mold bugs but they may not have died they may have been living but non-viable meaning it's still living but it does does can't be cultured meaning you can't grow it on a petri dish so it would still be something that's being stressed. Those cells are stressed, but they're still living. So we can still test for it. And our method is, is both living and dead DNA, although we spin out the dead DNA from non-viable cells, meaning non-living cells. So we're only sort of testing only the living uh, cells, which have real uh, live DNA in it. And that's our approach. And so, you know, it's unfortunate because we're starting to, what you're saying is now fire seasons here, and we're going to start to see you know, carcinogenic based, you know, uh, product that's going to have like, it's going to be, it's going to have some kind of fumes on it. And that's going to have some kind of, you know, influence of the, of the fire onto the actual product itself and may have an impact on the, on the mold itself, you know. Mm -hmm. What are some best practices? Uh, any advice you have for people that they should, when they're uh, looking at a grow, there's a lot of new grows that are going to be happening from New Jersey to New Mexico. Uh, what are some best practices to avoid a lot of this? 
I think that that if you're if you're in the grow business, and they probably know the business better than uh, you know me, but I think from an environmental perspective, I think that the, the, again, I'll go back to you know if we all clean the houses once a year, what do you think is going to happen? You're going to get mold, mm-hmm. right? So what you want to do is, if we really want to solve this problem, and we don't play whack-a-mole where we're using hydrogen peroxide to spray over the, of the canopy, or you're using UV light or microwaving the product or remediating the product. You wanna get over a 365 day and not every day you're testing, just even once a month, or if you can do it quarterly, really the hot zones. The hot zones in terms of airflow, in terms of water flow, in terms of traffic flow. And you, you can get a 3D spectral profile of what sort of reoccurs in your in your, the, the walls of your building, the vents of your building, the airflows, what's, where is the stream of pathogenic out, you know, um, you know, uh, pathogenic sort of layering in the, on the canopy. And that's the important piece because you'll spend millions of dollars building this thing, but you will walk over, let's just pick tens or tens of thousands of dollars to environment, to do the environmental monitoring that, that would save them hundreds of thousands, if not millions of, th- of dollars on that front. And what I think for those grows is making sure that they have the, the capability and the, the facilities to do that so that they can then build the right grow facilities from an environmental perspective that mitigates all of those spores winding up on the finished product, you see. Mm-hmm. Uh, we talked a lot today. Anything that we left out that you want to talk about? Yeah, look, I mean, thank you for one. Thank you for the time today. I think you covered spectrum of different topics, which I was really happy with these questions. Um, the, the topic that I really, final thoughts is really around, um, you know, it's the human nature in us to always dig our heels in to, to resist, resist change, right? But I think that the industry's come a, phenomenally come a long way. Um, because just because of, of just the mass scale of it and the passion behind all of us as individuals, because we care enough. Um, whether we want to call it Prohibition 3.0 or not, it's a different thing. But what, I, what, I, what I'm impressive, uh, impressive, impressive on is that it's about the innovation. And I'm really passionate about the fact that, you know, and I brought this up, we need the regulations to move to 21st century uh, challenges we're having. Number two, we want the people, we want mindset to be open to the to, to change because it's really key because we are at war with pathogens. We just felt how many, we saw 6 million people die of a bug in the last two years, close to a million in the United States of a one virus. So we are at war with pathogens. It's not going to ever go away. And if we continue to spray more uh, antimicrobials, use more antibiotics on our food, our agricultural, our environmental systems, it's going to create more and more superbugs. And when it creates more and more superbugs, it's going to be more difficult if we haven't moved along from an innovation perspective to use technologies that prevent, you know, um, adding more fuel to the fire, if you may, you know, creating more challenges in the future for our gen, I know not just us, but our kids' generations, for example. 
And so that's an important point that I want to, you know, distinguish why, why I feel passionate about this. And so my biggest challenge right now is I've got a great technological company that innovates on, you know, in a disruptive fashion, but I'm asking us all to be open-minded where we allow those, we use these new innovative technologies and also ask us from a regulatory perspective to move that regulations to, to more of a balanced level where it's between the state and the federal. So we can all have a win, 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 right? Amongst the regulators, amongst the industry, amongst the technology providers. And finally, most importantly, uh, amongst us as consumers and patients, whether it's cannabis, hemp, food, agriculture. We need to get there because we don't, otherwise we don't have a sustainable model. And all we're doing is we're rinsing and repeating the same thing in cannabis to these other industries. And I, I'm sorry for getting on my soapbox, but that's really important for, for you know, leaving it final thoughts. But I want to thank you because you've been wonderful for these kinds of questions and I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, I, I appreciate the passion. That's, that's why I wanted to ask. I, uh, I'm a firm believer in Kaizen, Japanese philosophy of constant improvement for the better. When uh, in a previous life, when I was at Bank of America and they labeled me as a resistor because I resisted change, it wasn't change I was resisting. It was just really bad ideas I was resisting. <laughs> so uh, I, I'm proud to be labeled a resistor to Bank of America. I can't wait for DeFi to knock them into obscurity. Uh, but that's a podcast for another day. Um, Millen, where are you guys at in social media? Where can people find you at? We're on LinkedIn. We're on uh, Instagram. We're on uh, we're on um, um, Facebook. You know, those three. You can just type in uh, Pathogen DX and and we'll pop up. You know, and and Justin will also forward them over. I'm not the that's a, I should have all the handles ready to, to announce or off to you. Got you, a team, but. you got a team to delegate that to Millen. We're going to put the LinkedIn uh, down in the, in the show notes so that YouTube doesn't, uh, you know, get us in too much trouble with any other links. But I think with that, we're going to have to roll this one up. So I want to thank my guest, uh, Millen Patel, CEO, co-founder of Pathogen DX. Millen, appreciate you being on the Talking Hedge. Thank you, Josh. Thank you for being, having me on Talking Hedge. Yeah. I really appreciate it. I appreciate you, man. Have a great weekend. But with that, uh, I'm Josh Kincaid. This is The Talking Hedge. So don't forget to like, share, and subscribe or don't. And I'm out. Don't forget to smash that like button on your way out and check out these other videos that we've got. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi. My name is Kira Reed, and I'd like to invite you to be inspired by the women who are leading in the cannabis industry. Each week, we will discuss empowerment, leadership, and what it means to be a woman in charge in marijuana, hemp, and CBD. As the founder of the Women Empowered in Cannabis community, I have had the great pleasure to get to know many brilliant and talented women who are CEOs, executives, politicians, advocates, and community leaders that are focused on creating a cannabis economy that is just, fair, and equal. We'll learn how these women make decisions, how they navigate a predominantly male industry, and what they're doing to level the playing field for women. I hope you'll join us.